Well, these scripture lessons were put together in the lectionary that most denominations use, and it's, it's always a puzzle to figure out what they have in common. The first story, the one of the rich fool, the farmer, uh, I, I, I've always wondered, what did he do wrong exactly? Here he was a successful farmer. We need people to produce lots of, lots of crops, abundant crops. And if they produce abundant crops, it certainly makes sense to have a way to store them so they won't spoil. Uh, why is he condemned by Jesus in this parable? Uh, well, uh, one little side effect may be that in the ancient world, as, as Peter Brown tells us in his new book on, on wealth in the early church, uh, in, in the ancient world, the, the, um, uh, the image, you might say, of, of those who are selfish and exploit others was people who had a, a McGranary full of grain because they would collect it from their tenant farmers and then hold it until there was a shortage of grain and then sell it at high prices and so make lots of money. But I don't think that's particularly Jesus' point in this uh, parable. I think he is going to something we hear in our epistle in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, when Paul uh, equates greed with idolatry. That is greed, caring about things, caring about wealth, is putting something else in place of God. Because Jesus says at the end of this parable that the rich fool is rich in the things of this world, but he is not rich toward God. But that raises another problem, at least it does for me, uh, which is what can we do to be rich toward God? After all, God is the holder of all, all riches. Uh, of course, uh, in many of the corrupt uh, uh, centuries of, of the Christian church's life, people thought they could be rich toward God by, by building expensive cathedrals or by you know, endowing things and so forth. But, but clearly that's not what Jesus, again, is talking about here. Uh, and it's important, I think, to turn to the other readings to have some sense of what it might mean for us, in fact, to be rich toward God. Because the beginning point is that he is, of course, rich toward us. That before we can reach out to God, he reaches out to us. I love the um, Hosea reading. And particularly, there's a new um, translation, the latest version of the NIV Bible, the 2011 version, even improves upon the, uh, the passage which we heard, heard read a few minutes ago. Let me read you uh, parts again of that passage. Uh, to make the point that the God that we are talking about, the God that Jesus is talking about, is not a God who is somehow infinitely remote or who sits someplace on a throne waiting for us to bring him gifts. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. And here's the new translation, the 
the older NIV, which I have here, says, I lifted the yoke from their neck. The new translation, presumably based upon a better understanding of the Hebrew original, says, to them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. Now, any of us who has children or who loves young children knows what that image speaks of. When you lift a child up and you, you rub your cheek against the child's cheek because you just love them so much. I lifted, I, 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 then I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and bent down to feed them. And then uh, God in this uh, a passage talk, talks about how Israel has offended against him, how angry he has been, uh, how he's determined to abandon them, to turn against them. And he says, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I love them too much. Um, my heart turns within me. I will not carry out my fierce anger, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. That's the God that Jesus is talking about, the God to whom we are called to be rich. And in the psalm that we, we read together, the same theme emerges. In this case, it's a God who is not passive, not waiting around for us to do something, but a God who is active, who is reaching out to provide for us. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Some wandered. I'm sure some of you can identify with this. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. What a powerful image that is. Finding no way to a city where they could settle, to a place where they could be at home, where they could put down their roots, where they could form relationships, where they could uh, become active in service to God. And the psalm goes on to say that, um, that God led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. And it goes on beyond where we, we read this morning um, to, to talk about some sat in darkness and the deepest gloom because they had rebelled against God. That is, some were trapped in their sinfulness. Now, it may be that some of us, in fact, uh, have felt trapped in sinfulness as well. And this psalm talks about how God reaches out and frees those who are trapped in sinfulness. And it goes on to talk about those who, in their, in their activity in the world, in this case, uh, merchants who set out on the, on the sea to do business, and yet they become threatened by the, the waves and the storms, and God reaches out and saves them in that situation. In other words, the God who, who we are called to, to uh, put at the center of our lives is one who is constantly concerned to be intervening, not just on Sunday when we're in church, but in all the circumstances of our lives and to make them uh, places where we can uh, rest in him, be active in him, and worship him. And then let's look at, at the Colossians, this wonderful passage, which in fact uh, I have read so many times without really looking at it closely enough to understand how very difficult and challenging, in fact, 
It is. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Uh, we're raised with Christ. Well, Christ died and was raised. Uh, we have not died. And yet Paul, in the previous chapter, in verse 12, had said, having been buried with him, that is, with Christ, in baptism, and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, Paul is saying in verse 1 here that we share in the experience, we share in the triumph of Jesus at the resurrection. Because like him, we have in some sense been put to death through our baptism and, and raised to a new kind of life uh, which is, is uh, hidden uh, with, uh, with God in Christ where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He goes on to write, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, I get concerned by this verse because I think we could easily take that to mean that we should not be concerned, for example, with social justice, which has been my profession for 50 years now. I was at the March in Washington 50 years ago. Uh, I don't like to think that Paul is saying we should not be concerned about justice issues. We should not be concerned about the hungry. We should not be concerned about peace. We should not be concerned about peace within our own families uh, and, and all the other concerns of, of this world. Is Paul saying we should just float off into some uh, abstract world, imagine ourselves sitting on a cloud playing a harp, um, you know, and not be, be engaged with what is in fact um, occurring in the world? I don't think so, as we will see in a minute. For you died, he says, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now here again, we need to go back to the previous chapter, verse 20, chap chapter 2. Since you died with Christ, he writes there, to the basic principles of this world. Let's think about that for just a minute. The basic principles of this world, that is the, the way in which this world understands reality, understands what matters in life, understands um, how, how we should guide our lives. This is what, in fact, in, in um, I'm sure many of you uh, are familiar with the term, we call worldview. That is a package of, of ways of understanding the world which goes together and which is in fact in, um, in contrast with the package of views which, which other people may hold. Uh, Dil Diltai, the uh, philosopher and, and uh, Max Weber, the sociologist, talk about worldview and, and argue that, that within Society, there are different sets of ways of understanding reality which constitute coherent, distinctive ways of understanding what life is about. Well, Paul is saying here that we have such a distinctive way of understanding what life is about, and that this should be informing the way that we engage with politics, with economics, with family life, with, with everything 
that we do. Uh, Abraham Kuyper, who I may have mentioned when I preached last, the man, I, I'm just reviewing a wonderful new biography of Kuyper, the, the Dutch theologian, uh, writer, and statesman, uh, talked about the antithesis. That is, that our position as Christians is in an antithetical relationship with the, the perspectives that guide uh, the world's rationality. Let me just indulge myself by giving an example out of my own uh, professional work. As some of you know, I, I teach educational policy. And for over 20 years, I was a state government uh, official responsible uh, for educational policy. Now, how does it being, being a Christian, having a Christian worldview affect the way in which I approach that particular area? <coughs> And, and I, I only give this because it's my example, but all of you would have other examples. Well, two immediate things leap to mind. One is that I cannot agree that the child is a blank slate upon whom the state is free to write whatever it chooses in terms of way of understanding the, the meaning of life, right? As a Christian, I have to believe that God has implanted in human beings a moral compass which has to be respected in how we educate. And that's why every one of my books basically wrestles with this question of how we limit the authority of the state, whether in, in the United States or in, or in other countries, uh, to seek to reshape the, the soft wax of humanity according to whatever um, whatever understanding the, the, uh, the elite controlling the society may choose. Or second point, it causes me to be militant about the right of families, of parents, to make decisions about the education of their children. Just this summer, I've been an expert witness in two different court cases which involve precisely that issue. There's a case right now before the Colorado Supreme Court in which I'm the expert witness, again, on this issue of whether families have a right to... Now, I won't go any more into this except to say these are examples of the way in which uh, uh, an understanding of principles from a Christian point of view put me uh, at odds with the prevailing viewpoint within frankly, the education world in the United States and other Western democracies as well. And I suspect that each of us in our own sphere would be able to identify ways in which if we are trying faithfully to live out of a Christian worldview, we in fact are placed in, in, in attention with the perspectives that the world is attempting to uh, to, to impose. Verse 4, Paul writes, when Christ, now here's the payoff line, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now here Paul is saying what the point of all this is. Um, he's talking about hope. Now, we all know that, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 talks about faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. 
And in the church, we're very good at talking about faith, and we're very good at talking about love, not always so good at doing it, but at least good at talking about it. But we often aren't very confident at talking about hope. Let's just go back to the first chapter of Colossians, where Paul is, is writing this church that he had never visited. He just knew about them. And he writes, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. So Paul is saying that the reason what, what faith and hope do in our, what faith and love do in our lives and the life of the church is in effect to, to prepare us to be able to act out of the hope which God, in fact, has held out for us. And in, in Colossians 3, verse 4, he's identifying the nature of that hope. That when Christ appears in the restored humanity, the restored world that, that he is going to, uh, in which he's going to set right the things that have gone wrong in, in God's creation, that in fact, that will be, um, uh, we will be with him. We will be part of that. Now, this is beyond the idea that, that after we die, we're gonna go to heaven. I'll, I'll be 75 years old next month, so I, I can talk quite confidently about dying. I, I, I plan on doing it one of these days. Uh, but, and, and I do it in, in complete trust of God. But, but what Paul and what Jesus have been talking about isn't simply that we're gonna be taken care of after we die. It is that we're being prepared now for a new creation a new role, a new activity, which God is going to call upon us to enact beyond the, uh, the life which we are now uh, a part of. And, and uh, here, here he's, he's describing it in verse four. And let me uh, go to another place where he talks about this. Hebrews chapter 10, um, let me get the right verse here. Uh, 22 and following. I, I said where he is saying this, there's much debate about who wrote Hebrews, as all of you know, although N.T. Wright appears to be claiming that Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, another scholar claims that a woman wrote Hebrews, and I happen to believe we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but that's not an issue we need to resolve today. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, what is that day? That day 
is the day we don't know when, it might be today, and it might be a thousand years in the future, the day when God completes his purposes in restoring the spoiled creation under the Lordship of Christ. And we are being prepared to be part of that restored creation, to be agents with Christ and the Holy Spirit of that restored creation. Now I mentioned earlier that, that in the Psalm, in Psalm 107, God is, um, is re represented as uh, leading his people to a city where they can settle. As, as I'm sure you know, we're told also in he Hebrews, uh, a couple of chapters on, here we have no abiding city. Here we have no enduring city. That is, God has brought us here to Boston to do something significant, something very significant in his name and for his cause. But this is not the final purpose of our calling. The final purpose of our calling is the city which God will establish in that restored creation. The city that is described in the last two chapters of the book Revelation, uh, notice that, that in those chapters, uh, John, who, who, who wrote Revelation, did not describe God's new place as a palace or as a temple. Indeed, he says there's not going to be a temple, but as a city. That is, as a place of human activity, of human habitation, but also of human work and effort of, of uh, all the things which, in fact, we are trying to do here in this beloved city of ours. Um, so we have, have no enduring city here because we're looking beyond the present toward the city uh, for which God is preparing us when we shall be revealed with Christ in glory. Having said that, the rest of the Colossians passage is, you could say, a training manual for what we need to uh, work on in order to be uh, men and women who are able to be part of God's unfolding purpose. I'm not going to comment on it, but I am going to read it. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to suggest that, that in your prayer time, this is a wonderful passage to pray over. The reason I'm not going to try to comment on it is I don't know how each of these terms may apply in your life. Only you know that. Uh, only I know how they apply in my life. But they are a, a list first of the things that God wants us to be sure to avoid. And then secondly, the characteristics God wants us to have in order to be prepared to do the work that he is calling us to. Notice first that while Paul talks about these as being uh, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, they are not primarily concerns about what we do with our bodies. When he says earthly nature, we're not talking about sex. We're talking about all the ways in which pride and other things cut us off from one another and from God. So let me read this passage. 
Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew. The, the new translation says no Gentile or Jew. Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And then Paul goes on to say the characteristics we need to have. Therefore, as God's chosen people, now remember, chosen for a purpose, chosen for the purpose of, of being revealed with Christ in glory as he establishes his new intended creation, his new city. Holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let me conclude with my favorite blessing out of Hebrews, which we say at the funeral service, and yet I think we should say it at far more occasions. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make us perfect in every good work to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.